Hello, and welcome to the Mystagogy podcast. In a tradition going back to the earliest centuries of Christianity, many newly initiated Christians were prepared for lives of faith through a formation designed to deepen their spiritual, liturgical, and community life. This period of formation was called mystagogy, a word which, in Greek, means leading through the mysteries. This program of mystagogy is being developed and taught by Barbara Nicolosi Harrington, a university professor of screenwriting, cinema, great books, and theology. The program is hosted by the Adult Faith Programs at St. Stephen Martyr Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. While mystagogy is intended for fully initiated Catholic Christians, we hope that all of our listeners will find the podcast to be a source of inspiration. Our program begins with a series of 13 episodes on prayer as the fundamental underpinning of the life of a Catholic disciple. In this first episode, Barbara provides an introduction to the spirituality of the Desert Fathers. All right, everybody, let's get started. A couple things we're going to do uh, tonight. I'm going to introduce the mystagogy thing just to kind of set us in what we're doing here. And then we're going to plunge into this, uh, the Desert Fathers and why. Because the Desert Fathers really are the first people who figure out what it is to be Christian, really. Uh, they, uh, they sit down and they kind of systematize it. And that happens over a period of, you know, three, four hundred years. But by the end of the Desert Fathers period, it's kind of, oh, this is, this is the elements of, of Christianity, right? At the time, Catholicism Christianity was one, right? So uh, anyway, I thought what a good way to kind of start us off and say, well, what's the goal of this whole program anyway, is to get us doing what the Desert Fathers figured out we ought to do. And so that's where we're headed, okay? Okay, so let's start uh, as we always should start with a prayer. And I pulled this prayer out. It's a prayer for the intercession of probably the greatest of the Desert Fathers, uh, St. Anthony of the Desert. And he became the, the best known because another saint, Athanasius, wrote an, a biography of him. And that popularized what was going on in the desert way beyond just the kind of little side communities who were kind of aware of it. So uh, it's one of the classics, by the way, of uh, Western, Western civilization, but especially Western Christianity the um the um the biography of saint anthony of the desert by saint athanasius so if you don't have it in your library get it uh and uh check it off and read it and so we're gonna ask this great saint for his intercession tonight and so at the end we we're gonna pause uh because uh, particularly people ask saint anthony if you if you're struggling with some kind of darkness if you're struggling with some kind of pattern of of uh, sin or confusion or darkness or whatever it is uh, that's the kind of thing especially that you bring saint anthony and ask uh, for his intercession so um uh, so um either someone in your life that uh, you want to pray for or that you know yourself 
but especially let's let's also pray for this summer uh, and this program and that it's uh, blessed by God. So, all right, let's uh, place ourselves in God's presence. Huh? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So together, can you, if you can read it, huh? St. Anthony of Egypt, accepted your call to love you above all things. He faithfully served you in the solitude of the desert by fasting, prayer, humility, and good works. In the sign of the cross, over the devil, through his intercession, may we learn to love you better with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength. As we love ourselves, Anthony of the Desert, great and powerful saint, grant us also this special request. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, now what is mystagogy? You know, mystagogy is kind of a uh, mirror of actually what happened in the church. So, so think about it. Jesus ascends into heaven and the apostles and the apostles disciples are like, what just happened here? Like this, this has never been seen before. A man commanding the this, the ocean and walking on the water and multiplying you know fish and loaves and i mean we've just never seen this in human history so the church goes through this period of mystagogy which is okay we know exactly what he said and what happened and we're getting the you know the gospels written down but what does it really mean now where are we where has it left us and so I say this to those of you, especially you new Catholics, that that's where you should be kind of now. Okay, I learned, you know, enough to make my creed statement and sign on. But what does it mean now? What's my life going to look like now? And this question is the stuff of mystagogy, as it was this, the stuff of the early church. And so in the early church, it's the fathers of the church who really start to work it out. And we call that the patristic period. But one of the things that's cool about the, that our faith is that the patristic period where the fathers are, are trying to figure out what just happened here, um, it's a conversation that, oh, sorry, there's my big graphic. Yeah, okay, That's, this, this is my technical ability, right? Um, the thing about this conversation that was unique in the history of the world was the people who want to know what just happened here are basically from every tribe and country. You have to understand that back then, your nation was your religion pretty much. If you were an Egyptian, you worship the Egyptian gods. Now, the, the Hellenizing effects of the Greeks and then the Romans, you know, they did kind of bring their, their gods along with them, but it wasn't like they absolutely took hold. But the thing about Christianity that's weird is right away there on Pentecost, people from every land 
are, yes, this is what I'm looking for. So this conversation is being had over the entire, you know, kind of, not the entire ancient world, but a huge chunk of the ancient world. And it's being led by people that we call the fathers of the church. Now, um, sorry. All right. So patristics is the word we use, patrology, for the study of the fathers of the church. Who, who were they? Mainly bishops, occasionally priests, and even a few lay people got in there, but mainly bishops. And they're the ones who basically put together the primary tenets of Christian theology and then in the Desert Fathers, especially Christian spirituality. But it's the fathers who are kind of leading the fight against heresy. Huh? Now, these are the qualities of who is a father of the church. Who do we actually, you know, how do we decide someone's a father of the church? Well, one is antiquity, right? These are people in the first 800 years of, of uh, you know, of the story of Christianity. Number two, they have to be orthodox doctrinally. There's a lot of people writing about Jesus and, and et cetera, but they're wrong. So we don't consider them fathers of the church. Interesting, except for Origen and to Tertullian, who got a few things wrong, but they mainly got stuff right. So we, we count them among the fathers. <laughs> um, uh, the other thing is that the fathers have to show personal sanctity. It had to be the way they were living, not just what they were saying. And, and so this is another qualifier. And then finally, um, it's the approval of the church. So usually the census fidei, where people in the church are like, this person's saying something really, really good, you should hear. And that, that kind, of, kind of wave of, of uh, the, the sense of the faith of the people gathering around these people is what uh, gives them, a, it's a sign for the church that it's really real. And we're going to see this with the fathers, the desert fathers as well, that people start going out to the desert, which is a tough trip to get a word from somebody that they've heard about and that these reputations then spread, okay? All right, now the desert fathers are basically early monastics, right? So monastic life comes out of the desert father tradition. The word um, monarchos in Greek, I believe, is the word for, uh, it means alone, the alone one, and actually is the root word of monk. So that word is first applied to the desert fathers. Now, mainly in the Egyptian desert, not exclusively, but there was something about the Egyptian temperament that the idea of, of uh, going on this adventure into the wilderness just really catches hold for them. And how many people are we talking about? At one point in the in Alexandrian desert, there's a quarter of a million hermits. I know, right? <laughs> Uh, so uh, this, this, this thing was a movement, but it's not only, it's going as far north as Syria, that people are leaving, going into the desert, and, um, and, and as far out as Carthage. But mainly the bulk of them are right there in, um, in Egypt. Now, uh, 
So this is St. Anthony of the Desert. And this is like the first, I'm gonna, you, I asked you to, those of you to kind of read some of the weird little apothems of the, um, of the uh, so you get a sense of how they taught. They, their teaching is most resonant of uh, Confucian teaching, if you know anything about uh, Eastern wisdom. But the fathers are using a lot of the same kind of little story things. Huh? But anyway, St. Anthony of the Desert, this is an, ex an example of the kind of pithy teaching that uh, forms their spirituality. So he says this, I saw the snares that the enemy spreads out over the world. And I said, groaning, what can get through from such snares? Then I heard a voice say to me, humility. Okay, this is the kind of like, boom, you know, like, you know, that you would get from the fathers. They, they weren't like long-winded. Uh, just really get to it. Now, okay, so when are we talking exactly? And I, I promise I'm really going to get to the meat of it, but just to give you this idea of lay it out for you. So when are we talking? There's two basic ages for the Desert Fathers um, development. So the first one is 250 to 325 AD. Now, if you know anything about those years, you know this is the time of the, the worst period of the Roman persecution. And so what happens really, what really is the spur for people to go into the desert is to simply survival. They are fleeing the cities because um, especially the Diocletian persecution, which was brilliant, brilliantly conceived persecution, which promised the neighbors of any Christians 50% of their property if you turned them in. So this incentivized christians to be turned in and it becomes this horrible horrible persecution so this is going on here and people are literally just leaving the cities to survive but what's interesting is after 325 if you know anything again about history what happens in 313 anyone constantine right battle of million bridge right? and so constantine conquers with the cross on his shield and then flip Christianity goes from being persecuted to being the center of the Roman empire and everybody's doing it now. And this spurs the second mass migration into the desert because a lot of Christians go, wait one minute. I didn't sign on to this thing to be popular. Think about it. For those first 300 years, Christians had been largely persecuted. They were used to being the weird ones that were excluded and that people said bad things about. And they were fine with it. In fact, they thought that's what it was to be Christian. Kind of like us today. But uh, so when Christianity suddenly becomes all that, a whole bunch of Christians are like, no. This isn't who we are. We're supposed to be the people who are counterculture. And so they flee, not because they're being persecuted, but because they're being celebrated. And this becomes the second big uh, movement into the desert. Okay. Now, again, how big is it? By 345 AD, there are 3,000 monastic communities in the desert primarily in, uh, in and around Egypt. 
an astounding number when you're talking, you know, the population wasn't what it is today. But could you imagine having 3,000 monasteries in an area about the size of North Carolina and Virginia? And uh, that's what was going on. Okay, so here it gives you an example. Uh, this is Egypt of the biggest, the main kind of centers of where the Desert Fathers were coming from, where they were speaking from, okay? Now, what kind of people went into the desert? I just thought this was really funny. So Paul the Simple, he's one of the famous, one of the famous Desert Fathers. He came home to find his wife in adultery, so he left for the desert. <laughs> Macarius of Alexandria was a baker of sweets. And one day someone said to him, you care too much about sweets. And he was stung to the heart, so he went to the desert. This has never been my problem. The, the brothers Paisius and Isaiah were sons of a rich merchant, and they heard that gospel passage, if you would be perfect, sell what you have and come follow me. And so they go into the desert. Moses the Ethiopian was the head of a criminal gang. He goes into the desert because he's being chased by the cops. <laughs> and he becomes this great desert father. Apollo the shepherd was a murderer of a pregnant woman. Arsenius was the learned tutor of the emperor's sons. Uh, what you see here is that the people who went into the desert weren't saints who went into the desert. They were people who went into the desert and then became saints. It should be very encouraging for us. Now, just something cool. This is the kind of what they lived in. This became the modus, you know, uh, play. And the interesting thing was because people would come to them, they needed like a parlor area. These, the places the fathers, the desert fathers were living in were designed to be places of where people could come and receive hospitality and get a word. Um, this is uh, a ref, one that they found uh, not long ago. And um, another big place for them was the caves. They, they dwelt in caves. Uh, and then, as I said, they start joining into monasteries at a certain point because uh, a, a thing comes through the community that all this hermetic life is like, we're supposed to love each other. And how can I love people if I don't see them? So monasticism coming together uh, grows out of this. But this was one of the big uh, monasteries going back to the third century. Okay. All right. It's so bad at a certain point, so many people going to the desert that one of the, the fathers wrote, I'm leaving the desert and going back to Alexandria. It's too crowded in the desert. Um, imagine, huh? But okay, so let's kind of get into what's really going on there, huh? And this thing of give me a word. So give me a word uh, goes way back in the church to this period where people would hear by reputation of a holy person and then go to them and say, give me a word. And the father would pray and then have something just for you. I mean, wouldn't you go like on foot a 500 mile trip into the hot desert for that? I'm not sure I would even go to downtown Norfolk, right? <laughs> But, uh, but it was that real. 
and and these people had uh, they they had figured something out that was giving them this crazy insight into uh, spiritual growth. And so people would go, huh? Give me a word. The words were called apathos, apathem. Uh, that's what we call them. Now, it comes from the Greek meaning to speak out. In other words, the apathems would be the father would be sitting there in his silence and you would come and you would be, you know, father, give me a word. And then he would go, you need to go and blah, blah, blah. Right? <laughs> give me a word. Like it would burst out of their silence. Um, uh, these apathems, okay? And then people would write them down and then they would. there were people who would collect them and that's how we have what we have of the Desert Fathers, these collections of people who, you know, by the thousands and thousands who had gotten word from them, okay? Now, um, so here's, um, here's an example of an apathem and I'm gonna have a few in the presentation here. But this one is from Abba Isaiah. He says, the Christian who receives constant insults is like a tree watered every day. Rats. But there it is, okay? Okay, here's another one. Disciple, father, what must I do because I'm so hungry? Macarius says, well, then eat. Says, I've eaten and I'm still hungry. Macarius says, maybe you're a donkey. <laughs> now, it's kind of interesting, actually. Maybe you're a donkey. You know, maybe you're not living like a human. Maybe you have become someone whose animal appetites run your life. And so you have to be open to that possibility. You could be a donkey. All right, um, now. Pope Benedict is really, really, was really, really high on the fathers of the church. He wrote, uh, he did, I think, like three years of Wednesday audiences or something on the fathers. And he did almost a year, as, as I recall, on the desert fathers. This is every Wednesday he would give a teaching about uh, someone, uh, one of the desert fathers, for a long time. So he said this, basically. He said that the desert fathers are for us the perfect metaphor of our lives. Because the truth is, we are all sheep lost in the desert, but the shepherd is out there looking for us. He said, that is our life as believers. We are sheep who are lost. And is there anything more pathetic than that? But the good news is the shepherd is out there looking for us. So he says this, we go into the desert to find the way to bring humanity to Christ. That that was the real thing driving the desert fathers ultimately, was that this problem of how, how do we get people to meet Jesus? How do we help people connect with God? that that problem couldn't be solved in the normal workaday life. Figuring that out required going off and brooding over it for several hundred years as it happened. So uh, Pope Benedict sees this in their writings. He's like, at the bottom of the, the writings of the Desert Fathers is this concern of 
how do I help somebody connect with God? How do I start with myself? But then how do I uh, do that? Follow that great commission as the evangelicals would have it, huh? To go into the whole world and, and bring the good news. How do I do that? So Pope Benedict says, there is no greater priority than this to enable the people of our time to encounter God, the God who speaks to us and shares his love. That that's the greatest priority of the church. And we're the church. So we do a lot of other stuff we get caught up in, but the point of mystagogy is that to bring God where he's not, to help you bring God where he's not, as Teresa of Avila is going to say. Okay, now, the goal, the, the, that's, the, that's the remote goal of the fathers, of the desert fathers. Their proximate goal, their closer goal, is this state called hesychasm, which literally means the state of prayer. So the Desert Fathers figure out you have to be in a certain frame of being. It's more than just even a frame of mind in order to pray well. What is praying well? Well, we're going to see Teresa of Avila is like, no, it's easy. All you have to do is raise your mind into the presence of God. But to do that well requires, as the Desert Fathers figure it out, a state of being. And it's a combination of these things we're going to talk about now, the keynotes of desert spirituality. But some of the key ones are quiet, rest, peace, and stillness. That you have to live in that place of quiet, rest, peace, and stillness in order to make a good prayer. A bunch of you want to leave right now (laughs) because modern life militates against quiet, rest, peace, and stillness. It does, it absolutely militates against it. Um, I'm a breast cancer survivor and I remember saying to my oncologist at one point, so, what makes this happen? You know, it's like just kind of making conversation, you know. And she said to me, oh, modern life, it's toxic. We all know it. We're, we just want what we want in modern life. Even though we know it's killing us and it's giving us cancer. Do you want to lose your 5G extra speed power thing? Right? Do you want your food to spoil? Etc. Right. So I think that modern life is toxic physically for us, but it's also toxic spiritually, and that's our problem. But we're not alone. The fathers found that the cities were toxic too, which is why they go into the desert. Um, Pope Benedict, continuing here, says this: the point of Catholicism is that we become living exegesis. Anybody know what the word exegesis means? Okay. 
oh, come on, really? It's, it's, it's really not that, well, anyway, anybody have an idea what exegesis means? Okay, yes, especially of what? Scripture, thank you, yeah. So ex biblical exegesis is basically a fancy way of saying, analyzing the Bible, reading passages of the scriptures and kind of saying, oh, right. The reason they had big things of wine at Cana was because of this. And the reason the steward did that was because of that. That's biblical exegesis. Pope Benedict says, the point of our lives is that we become living exegesis to the world. Somebody put that together. What is he exactly saying by, by saying that? Anybody? How, what are you hearing me say? Excuse me? Go forth and be disciples. In other words, they should be able to look at you and that explains the scriptures to them. Specifically, huh? That you're a living exegete of the Bible. Uh, to become scripture before the world. This becomes what the desert fathers are doing. Their main preoccupation, their main tool is the Bible. They're reading scriptures, uh, and they're not just reading it, they're memorizing the scriptures. In fact, many of the fathers, that's their advice. People go to them, Father, give me a word. And it's like, memorize the book of Isaiah and come back in two years and we'll talk if you still have problems. But really, I, I used to kind of like, oh, my, I, I spent a lot of time, my whole professional career working with evangelicals. And, you know, when they, you know, they give their thing of memorizing texts and everything. And I'd be like, oh, <laughs> they're right. They're right. We really should. Because the more you memorize it, the more it penetrates you. This is why the church has us have the responsorial psalm at mass, right? Because some things bear repeating. So, okay, now this is uh, from a book called Atheist Delusions, which by David B. Hart, which I love, but he says this about the fathers in the book. Uh, they are fascinating testaments to the birth of a new spiritual polity, a community whose sole concern was to discover what it really meant to live for the love of God and one's neighbor. And here's what they were trying to do. System systematically, or what's that word we use all? Systemic systemic christianity from the fathers was to banish envy hate and resentment huh? to seek the beauty of christ in the world and in the depths of the human soul and that they want to systematize this okay so what's their system they basically have like six or seven keynotes and the first one is quiet now Quiet, huh? Um, when first experienced, quiet is startling. I was a nun for nine and a half years. Maybe some of you knew that. But anyway, I was in religious life for nine and a half years. And we used to make an eight-day silent retreat every year. Now I'm an extrovert. <laughs> I used to pack a milk crate of books because I was terrified of actually getting into what the retreat was trying to do, which was be silent. And I remember my novice mistress at one point with seeing me 
getting into the car with my milk crate of books that I was going to read over retreat. She's like, uh, Sister Barbara, you're, you're not quite getting it. Right? What, what was going on there? Well, what is it that, why do we flee the silence? Why do we flee the silence? Why is it? I mean, I don't know about you. As soon as I get in my car, radio, on. Hmm? Fear. Fear of what? What are you going to hear? You're going to hear your mind. Who said that? Okay, very good. That's actually, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you can't hear God unless you're quiet. That wasn't what the fathers were really worried about. The fathers were, you can't hear yourself unless you're quiet. Because there's two things we tend to do to shut out the voices that emanate from us. Remember, Jesus says, it's not the stuff on the outside that makes us unpure. It's the stuff on the inside, right? And so there's two things we basically do. We numb or we distract. And uh, I know people, uh, so I spent 23 years in Hollywood. I'm sure this is not the problem here in Virginia, but in Hollywood, what, what I found was a lot of Catholics that I would work with would have like boxes in their souls or in their mainframe that were locked and they don't go there. Like whole areas of their life. Oh, well, yeah, that was my first marriage, but I don't think about it. I don't go there. You know, or yeah, my 13-year-old has been making dates on the internet with older women, but I'm, I just can't even think about it. I'm not going there. Or yeah, I've had a lot of times my friendships devolve into this cycle of horrors, but you know what? I can't think about it. And so what you find is after a while, people have all these boxes that are locked that they're basically navigating around because I can't think about that. This is not a fully free life, right? What is, what is it St. Irenaeus says? The glory of God is man fully alive. If you have all these places in you that you've literally shut off because you just don't want to go there because uh, it's just too, it's too much work or whatever, it's too depressing. It's too sad. I, you know, I don't know what to do. I can't change all of those things. Huh? So uh, basically you're just walling parts of yourself off and you lose spontaneity among other things. But this idea of the quiet, see it's in the quiet when those door, those boxes start to like bang a little bit and rumble so yeah, the quiet is first and foremost about us being able to acquire self-knowledge, which Teresa of Avila is going to say, you cannot move ahead in the spiritual life if you don't have self-knowledge. And it's not just Teresa of Avila. There was a guy named Plato who said the unexamined life is not worth living. He's a pagan for heaven's sakes. But uh, this idea of the quiet now, okay, we got to have it, huh? 
We can't just fill the silence. What are we going to do? I'm going to ask you here now to take two minutes and ask Jesus, what am I going to do? I got to get some silence in my life. Lord, what am I going to do? Go. All right. Anybody hear anything? Adoration. Okay, so you're going to go and sit uh, in the silence. Okay. Yeah? Okay. In some, in different ways, huh? We're going to have to learn how to resist the pull of this world in some ways. We're just going to have to, or the level of our prayer is going to plateau. So um, anyway, think about that. Ask Jesus on the way home. What's one thing I could do to get a little more silence in my life? Uh, This is, I think, Anthony of the Desert. Take care to be silent. Empty your mind. Attend to your meditation in reverence before God, whether you are resting or working. If you do this, you will easily recognize the attacks of the demons. Think about that. You'll know their voice when they come at you, if you dwell in the silence. All right, number two is related to the silence, and it's solitude. That Christian spirituality requires solitude. Now, it's important to note that this isn't isolation. You know, solitary confinement is like the worst thing you can do to somebody in jail after a while, right? To take a human person who is meant not to be alone and and take them away from all contact with other people. That's not what solitude is in the Christian sense. The idea of solitude is to be alone with the alone. I want to make time to be alone with God. Now, whatever that looks like for you, um, a walk in the woods, you know, sitting on the beach, um, coming into church, sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament. My mother used to say to us all the time, because I remember her saying to me at a certain point, did you say your rosary today? And I was like, oh yeah, I say it when I'm driving to work. 
And she said, imagine if you had a friendship where you never just were ever alone just with the friend, but you always had to have something else you were doing when you were with your friend. And I realized that that's kind of what I was doing. I was doing the rosary when I was doing other things. Now, fine, say the rosary on the way into church, into work, but you better have some time when you're talking to God where you're not doing anything else. And what does that look like? Anthony the Great says this, just as fish die if they stay too long out of the water, so the brothers who loiter with men of the world lose the intensity of their inner peace. So like a fish goes towards the sea, we must hurry to our place of solitude for fear if we delay, we will lose our inner quiet. Now, we're meant to go out and spread the good news to people who are not our brothers. But you better have a cynical to retreat to. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. Teresa, the little flower, has a great line. She says, I don't ever want to be one of those people who's always talking about Jesus, but never talking to him. Uh, so think about that solitude, huh? I mean, a constructive, intentional choice to do something that makes you more hyper aware of the presence of God. I'm going to go into the wilderness and I, I know you'll meet me there. Take two minutes. What am I going to do? What am I going to do intentionally to cultivate some solitude in my life? Go. Go. Anybody got an idea? Yes, Mark. Stay off TV. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a good solution for a lot of us. Television, cell phones. All right. Yeah. Huh? The main thing is to make time for yourself. Yeah. I mean, to be alone with God. It's, 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 um, I want to go somewhere where I can sense you more readily. Yes. Mm-hmm. 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 
Yeah, which is the cell thing of the Desert Fathers, right? They have a cell, which is exactly what you just said, where it's a room that's very spare and simple. And they know when they go into that room, they are going to meet the Lord. Now it's like, oh, I got kids, I got jobs, I got this, I got that, I got this, I got that. Yes. Aren't you afraid you're going to go your whole life without really meeting the Lord because we're so busy and noisy? And I think it's not going to happen accidentally. It might, actually. I find, you know, I get kicked on my butt with illness whenever God has just said, I can't get your attention any other way. So I'm giving you the gift of breast cancer. Thank you, Lord. Okay, prayer is the next one. Interesting. You can't even get to prayer until you get to quiet and solitude. But prayer, huh? What is prayer? Again, the raising of the heart and mind to God. And I I had this dialogue with my students this week. We were reading, um, or not this week, a couple weeks ago, actually, we read Brothers Karamazov in my honors class with my freshmen. And there's a scene there where the character of Alyosha, who is the, the good son, he's a little saint, frankly, but he's trying really hard to meditate on the wedding at Cana. And he's like, eh, and then he's like, oh, but my brother, Ivan, no, 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 I can't think about that. All right, back to the wedding at Cana. And so then there was, there was wine and then, oh my gosh, Dimitri is in so much trouble. No, I'm not going to think about that. And now, all right, back to Jesus. And he said, right. And it's a ridiculous scene for like four pages where he's trying so hard to not let what's really in his mind and heart get in the way of talking to God. And it's like, no, it's, I said to my students, it's not the mind you wish you had that you raise into God's presence. You raise to God's presence the mind you have. And whatever it is that's preoccupying you, that's what you talk to your friend about. And so this idea of getting, becoming aware of that and being okay with it, it's like, well, Jesus, you know, I'm really kind of embarrassed by, you know, my sink full of dishes. Like, all right, well, let's talk about that. Why are you embarrassed? And it's like, I know I should be talking about something important to you, like world peace. We used to say in the convent, when you love someone, you love whatever it is that's bothering them. You care about whatever it is that's bothering them, okay? So, um, so here's a great one. Uh, the brothers asked the Abba to teach them about prayer. He said, there's no need to talk much in prayer. We've heard that before. Reach out your hands often and say, Lord, have mercy on me as you know how. But if conflict troubles you, say, Lord, help me. Then the brothers asked, what kind of prayer is not acceptable before God? And he answered, the prayer for the destruction of enemies. (laughs) That one doesn't get very high. Uh, Let me say this about prayer. Um, My, one of my, uh, the spiritual writer, her name is Anne Lamott. Uh, You know, you might know her. Uh, She's kind of a mess in some ways, but she's just a fabulous writer. And uh, she says this about prayer, huh? If you have a broken foot, don't say, 
God fix my foot. Because maybe having a broken foot is going to teach you patience, is going to let other people love you, etc. right? You're going to have to be humble by your broken foot. She says, so don't tell God what to do. She says, but don't say, God, please don't fix my foot because that's just sick and twisted. She says, the perfect prayer is Jesus' foot. Think about that with people in your life that you are despairing of, that you are afraid for, that you are worried about. Instead of telling God how to fix them, just raise them. And try to do it, you know, in this, hopefully that intensity of love will raise them higher. And there's no prayer like for someone we really love. We don't have too much trouble getting distracted, do we? When we feel desperate. Another great story of um, one of the fathers was somebody uh, saying, you know, what, 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 how should I pray? And, and he took him, the disciple, and he held his head under the water until the guy was like, blah, 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 blah. he finally gets up and he goes, okay, you know the way you wanted air? That's how you really should want what, what it is you're praying for. And that will fuel the prayer. All right. All right. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm pushing for time. We have nine minutes, and, and uh, so I'm not going to keep stopping, but I want you to take that time and ask yourself, okay, uh, on your way home or tomorrow, whatever. Simplicity. After prayer, we should be led to simplifying our lives. These things have a progression. Abba Gregory says, these three things God requires of all the baptized, right faith in the heart, truth in the tongue, temperance in the body. This is a shot of most Americans' garages. Enough said. Simplify. Uh, charity. Charity is next. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very good. Yeah. Right. Look for the treasure in the box. Yeah. Well, good. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, simplify, like, one box. One box, yeah, but this is this is a metaphorical my my mind. Uh, we, again, the thing about the Desert Fathers is intentionality. They figure out that Christianity is intentional. You can't be an accidental Christian. It's kerygma. Every single day I turn around. That's being a Christian. And so that's what, they're, that's what they're saying. You know, it's like you have to go in search of God. You have to intentionally say, I'm going to clear up some of this, this stuff. Because it's not going to clear up itself. All right, charity. Charity. Huh? Charity, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, is impossible for us. 
Charity is the love of God that goes through us. When you give God permission and you get out of his way enough, God can love through you. But it's completely outside of our realm to know how to be charitable. Why? Because we don't know what people really need. We don't know how to love them. I mean, short of spaghetti, which is the Sicilian way, which is not bad. But no, seriously, we don't know. We just just don't even know what tough love should be, what compassion should be, when I should validate, when when I'm, you know, we don't know. And so St. Thomas says the idea is just try to make yourself as, as a open a vessel as possible so that God can reach through you and love the world through you. He says there's four signs of charity. There's four signs. Huh? The four marks of Christian charity are melting, piercing, uh, ecstasy, and energy. And that they flow from one another. The first one is melting. When you really start to love, your hard edges go away. You are open to other people. You can bend a bit. You're not protecting yourself. This is a sign that God is loving through you when your impulse to defend yourself, it just kind of melts away a little bit. He says, this prepares us for the piercing, which is, you know, the cross. But that when you've melted, the piercing doesn't hurt as much. It's not like driving a nail into a rock. And so the piercing almost becomes, it's, it's like something, he says, you almost want to do it. You want to suffer for people when you love them. It's a mark of love that it does crazy things for other people. And then he's going to say, and then, then you get this ecstasy because you're like, I am aware that God is loving through me because this is so much more cool than anything I could do on my own. In the book, Brothers Karamatsa, Father Zosima says, if you want to believe that God exists, do works of charity because You're going to see miracles happen through you, and you'll know it wasn't you. And it will confirm your faith. But this idea of of the becoming now hyper aware of God's action, ecstasy. I'm I'm aware of his presence now, huh? And that's the third mark of love. And then finally, it's energy. Because you're being powered now on this wave. So, St. Thomas says this, this is a sign that God is loving through you. And it's not just some kind of narcissistic, narcissistic infatuation thing. The brothers asked the elder, what are one to do? What are we to do when one of the brothers falls asleep at prayer? You know what I would do? Excuse me. We need to talk. Yes, no, God told me I need to tell you. You're not supposed to fall asleep at prayer. Thank you. You're welcome. Right? The old man answered, I would place his head on my knee and stay all night in chapel praying on his behalf. 
lovely. There's piercing there, there's melting there, there's, there's ecstasy and there's energy. All right, next is detachment. Detachment, uh, here's the example. Going to town one day to sell some baskets, Abba Agathon met a cripple by the road who said, please carry me into town with you. So he did. When he had sold a basket, the cripple then said, buy me a cake. So he did. Then Agathon sold another basket and the cripple said, now buy me some fruit. So he did. You getting the pattern here? And thus it was with all the baskets. When he went to leave, the cripple said, now carry me back to where you found me. So he did. And when he placed him there, the cripple said, Agathon, you are filled with divine blessings. And Agathon saw it was an angel of the Lord. Detachment from your own will, right? That God has someone out there he wants to do a miracle to through you. But that's going to require us to change our plans. I always tell myself when, when I get this weird invitation to do something good or neutral, it's especially the neutral thing where God's really going to do something through. Yeah. Good luck. I mean, theoretically, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. Yeah. No, you're right. I'm, I'm not trying to be not, I'm not uh, sorry. I'm going to be sarcastic. You're absolutely right. But how do we do that, practically speaking? Okay, very good. Yeah. You're done. You can go. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. No, she's right. How do you empty yourself? Well, this is, this is the way. But that idea of my plans are fungible, I'm available to, for God to, do, to change my plans. And that, again, becomes almost impossible for us in modern life, isn't it? Like, I have my schedule. I am available to God to do a miracle through me on Thursdays from 2 to about 2.45. Right? Okay. Uh, Self-denial, asceticism. Yeah, we don't need this one. Uh, Someone asked Abba Agathon, which is better, bodily asceticism or interior vigilance? The old man replied, man is like a tree. Asceticism is the leaves, custody of the mind, the fruits. Our care should be for the fruit, but the fruit needs the protection and nourishment of the leaves. So they go together. Self-denial, um, will promote internal vigilance. Um, okay, let me get to, I think we're down to the last two. Humility. Another day when a council was held at Cetus, the fathers treated Moses with contempt in order to test him, saying things like, why does this black man come among us? When he, had, when, when, when he, had, uh, when he heard this, he kept silence. Afterwards, they said to him, Abba, did you not grieve at all? He said, I was grieved, but I kept silence. Humility, saying God has, God is allowing this guy to throw stones at David. You know, that story of King David. The demon said to Abba, Macarius, sorry, all that you have, we have. 
You are distinct from us only by your humility. Through that, you get the better of us. Mm. What is humility? Humility is truth. Truth about yourself. Truth about God. Namely, that you are not God. And finally, hospitality. So this thing the Desert Fathers figured out is it's, it all comes down to getting us ready to welcome the soul who is starved for God, who is going to come to our house, who's going to come into our life. When brethren come to you, bow before them, because it is not them but God in them before whom we prostrate ourselves. When you see your brother, you see the Lord your God. So we have, you know, I was a stranger and you welcomed me as one of the qualifications for the kingdom. But hospitality, moving people from enemy to stranger to friend to family. That that is uh, what Christians bring into the world. That is our vocation. How we welcome the stranger. So I think the point here is that simply living in the desert isn't anything special and simply living in the world is nothing necessarily unholy. You can renounce your own desires and be centered on God in either place. But you have to go where the spirit leads you. And what we're talking about by that is the intentional thing. I would say this week, ask God, okay, let me make a little move. What would bring me closer to you? What would help me hear you better? What, what is one thing I can do intentionally that is not going to happen accidentally? And see what he says. Any thoughts, comments, questions? promise in the future i'm going to shut up more and we'll have more time for talk as we go but oh yeah too much no okay good feed me feed me no i'm only kidding no no No. cool everybody get a notebook huh you're going to want to take notes yeah there it is there it is yeah Yes, Mary. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Cool. Okay, well, I thought we would end with, because one of the things we're doing with the converts is we're introducing them into the legacy of great Catholic everything. And there is traditionally in Catholicism, as all you longstanders know, Compline, which is night prayer, ends with the Salve Regina. So I thought what we'll do is end our sessions by seeing the Salve Regina. I'm just curious, how many of you have sung the Salve Regina? Some of you, good, you know, huh? Good, we can do this. Jessica is going to lead us. All right, cool. So let's, um, let's thank God for uh, bringing us together tonight. Thanks God for everyone's uh, generosity and, um, and now place our lives in the hands of the Blessed Mother. Okay, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why don't we stand and sing this Alva Regina?
Those of you who don't know, that's the Hail Holy Queen in Latin. So, yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Come again. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mystagogy Podcast. The music for this podcast is provided by George Sarah. You can learn more about his music over at georgesarahmusic.com or by following the link in the show notes for this podcast. Until next time, be well and God bless.